All right, well, good morning. Good to see you guys this morning. Uh, this morning we're continuing in the parables of Jesus. Uh, we're looking at the parable of the two sons this morning in Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 to 32 is where we're going to be at this morning. So if you have your copy of God's Word, whether you have a physical copy, a copy on your phone or tablet or whatever it might be, uh, I'd invite you to open that now. It's, uh, we, we believe that God's Word is important. We believe that it's God's Word that speaks to us. Um, and so we want to open God's Word and we want to hear from the Lord this morning. Also, as Ryan mentioned, we are taking communion this morning, so hopefully you have your prepackaged communion deal. And if you want to just you know, tear the little top part there so you can easily get to the wafer, um, go ahead and, and do that if you haven't done that already. Let me read this week's parable. It's a little bit shorter than some of the last ones, so I'm going I'm to read this week's parable beginning in verse 28 of Matthew 21. <clears throat> what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. He went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the Father? They said, The first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this day, this opportunity to gather together, Lord, as your church to open Your Word, to hear from You, God, to explore Your Scriptures. God, as we do so this morning, would You help us to understand this parable? Would You help us to take this parable and to apply it to our lives, Lord? And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we live in a consumeristic world, and with consumerism comes marketing. And marketing is not necessarily a bad thing. I wish that I was better at marketing. I mean, marketing can often be the difference between whether your product or your service gets some traction in the market or not. And, and we are bombarded with marketing ads all day long, right? As you, as you drive down the highway, listening to the radio, flipping through a magazine, you know, scrolling through Facebook, going to a particular website, watching a YouTube video, I mean, just watching the television in general, uh, if you still have cable, then, you know, you're bombarded with marketing ads all day long. And some ads, admittedly, some ads are terrible. You know, you're like, man, I would never buy that product. That ad is so bad. Some ads are really good and they make you want to pull out your credit card and put in your credentials and get that bad boy shipped to your house as soon as possible. And I don't know about you, but before I do that, before I make a purchase, I always read the reviews and not the not the reviews that the marketing folks you know put on the website to make you think man this product's actually really good but I'm talking about the reviews that are down at the bottom or I'll go to YouTube and I'll find a, a YouTuber or maybe even a website that does reviews for that specific area of some product that I'm trying to purchase and I'll watch that and I'll see hey is that product actually going to do what it says that it is going to do and that's really what matters right it matters if the product is going 
going to do what it says. If the product does not perform in the way that the product claims that it's going to perform, well, there's no reason in spending your hard-earned money on that particular product or on that service. Performance matters, not only when it comes to products and services that we might spend our hard-earned cash on, but also when it comes to being a part of the kingdom of God. Now, in the past, we have talked about that context matters. And today's parable is, is no different. Context matters. And as we look at the context and we explore that, Jesus is interacting with the chief priests and the elders. And He's going to be interacting with them over the next couple of parables that we're going to look at. And He's just had an encounter with them. And in this encounter, the chief priests and the elders, they're trying to, to trap Jesus. They came up with this sneaky question that they thought they could, they could get Him on. So look at the text beginning in verse 23, just a little bit before the parable that I read. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you the, the authority, this authority? And these things are talking about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, his cleansing of the temple, his healing of a blind and lame man, his, his refusal to silence those who are you know, praising him as the son of David there in the temple. And they want to know, listen, Jesus, by whose authority are you doing these things? You're allowing these things to take place. Now, Jesus, he's Jesus, right? So he senses their trap. He knows what they're up to. And so in verse 24, Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? So he poses this question to them. And so what do they do? Well, if we continue on 25, they discuss it among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd for they all hold that John was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And so Jesus escapes their trap. He's just, he's too smart for them. He's too brilliant for them. And after he, his encounter with them, Jesus doesn't just walk, doesn't allow them just to walk away with their heads hung low. Jesus doesn't get together with his disciples and throw this big party and like, look how great I am. Look how, how I outsmarted the chief priest and the elders. Instead, Jesus goes on the offensive. He takes the opportunity to confront the chief priests and the elders at this time. And not, not, as a, not as a way to, you know, kick them while they are down or anything like that, but he does it to provide them with an opportunity to repent. You see, even when Jesus is confronting his opponents, he is gentle and he is lowly of heart with them. And so how does Jesus confront them? Well, he does it through a parable and really a series of parables as we're going to see, but we're going to look at the first of this series this morning. The parable of the two sons is where we're at. And so he begins with this question in this parable. He says, what do you think? And he's really using this tactic to try to draw them in. He wants to know what do they think about this parable that he is about to say. And the parable centers on two sons and their response to their father. And the first son I've labeled the rebellious but the working son. So look at verse 28. We'll go down to 29. What do you think? A man had two sons and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards, he changed his mind, and he went. And so again, we have another parable, a parable about, about a vineyard owner. This time, he's not going to the marketplace to try to bring in some workers. He's going to his own family 
and he goes to them and asks them to go and work for them. And so the, the father goes to the first son, and he asks his first son, son, will you go and work in the vineyard today? And his son, being rebellious, says, no, I'm, I'm not going to go and work in the vineyard today. It seems that he had something better to do, or maybe he just didn't want to obey his father. Him and his father were not getting along at this time in his life. And he's like, whatever my father asked me to do, I don't care what it is, I'm not doing it. And so he says, no, I'm not going to the vineyard today to work. Highly disrespectful, but at least this guy's honest. Some time goes by, the, you know, and he, he, he realizes his conscience gets the best of him. Uh, he begins to think, man, all the stuff that my father does for me, I should be grateful for that. And so he decides, I am going to go and work in the vineyard. And he does exactly that. He has a change of heart. He ends up and goes and works in the vineyard. The first son, the rebellious son, but the working son. After he goes to the first son, he goes to his second son. And he asks his second son the, the same thing. And I call this guy the flattering but lying son. Going to the second son, asks the same thing. Verse 30, he went to the other son and said to the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but this guy didn't go. And so the second son, he's bold. He's not as, excuse me, he's not as bold as the first son. The second son knows that he's not going to go and work in the vineyard this day. He knows that, but he looks his father straight in the eyes and he says, Yeah, Dad, I will go and I will work in the vineyard for you today. Knowing full well that he has something else planned, that he's not going to work in the vineyard at all. And so this guy is the flattering son, but he is the lying son. He just didn't want to tell his father right out front that, no, I'm not going to do it. He felt like he would get something from his father. And so this guy's talking the talk like, yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to do it. His father is, is probably proud of him. He's thinking, oh, my second son, way better than my first son. I mean, my first son just looked me flat out in the face and said, I am not going into the vineyard today. Here's my second son saying, yes, I'm going to do that. But he doesn't go. Now this... That's the entire parable. Short parable, but he uses this parable to confront the chief priests and the elders, and that's exactly what Jesus does. He uses the, it to confront the chief priests and the elders. And Jesus begins confronting them in a way that he's done in the past. Jesus wants to know which of those sons did the will of the Father. And so look at the beginning of verse 31. Which of the two did the will of the Father? And what are the chief priests and the elders say well they say well it's it's the first son he's the one who did the will of the father the one who went into the vineyard to work he's the one who did the will of the father even though he didn't go at first he realized his mistake he repented and he went to the vineyard to work and it's the first son that teaches us the idea of repentance now the other day i was driving up to the church uh, the pictures you guys see on the wall out there, they, they had come in, and, and I was excited to see them. I was excited to get them up on the, on the wall. And I was at my house, and, and, and so I, was think, I said to myself, well, before I go up there, I need to grab a few tools uh, to be able to put these pictures on the wall. I got distracted before I walked out the door. I, I did not get the tools. I got in the car, and I started driving here. And about halfway here, I realized, man, I don't have the tools that... I thought that I was going to need in order to put the pictures up on the wall. And so I thought to myself, well, I could just go ahead and go, like no big deal. I'll just make do with what I have. But then I, but then I had a second thought, like no, that, that's not going to be wise. I need to make sure that I have what I, what I need in order to get the stuff up on the wall so that it'll look right. And so I turned around and I came back 
to my house and I got those tools and I ended up coming back to the church and putting those up on the wall. Now that's a picture of repentance, right? It is, it is realizing the direction in which we are heading is unwise, it is unbiblical, and it grieves the Heavenly Father. And realizing that, what do we do? We make an about face. We, we turn and we go in another direction, in the direction that the Heavenly Father has deemed for us to go. And that's exactly what the first son does. At first, he doesn't want to listen to his father. He, he wants to go off and do his own thing. He doesn't want to, 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 to listen and, and say, Father, you are right, you are wise. He doesn't want to do any of those things. But after a while, he realizes that doing his own thing is not the wise thing to do. It's not what pleases his father. And so he makes an about face and he ends up going into the vineyard to work. You see, our Heavenly Father has called us to work on His behalf. We were not created to live life on our own according to our own way of doing things. We were not created to go off and determine what was good and right on our own. Instead, we were created to bring God glory by living according to God's will. But we have rebelled against God for our desire to do things our own way. We, we've determined that the way that we're going to do things is wiser and much better than the way that God wants us to do things. And so we push God's claim on our life off to the side and we seek to do things according to our own way. And that is until the Spirit comes into our life and the Spirit you know, convicts us and helps us to see that life is not all about us. Life is not all about going in, in our direction and doing things our own way. Life is about bringing glory to the Father, accomplishing the purpose for which He has created us to do. And when the Spirit helps us to realize that because of the grace and mercy of God, we will repent and we will turn back to God and we will begin working for Him. And that's how it should be. That's how things should go. While we might be rebellious at first, the one who ultimately turns to do the will of the Lord is the one who is truly a part of the kingdom of God. Which means that the second son is not a part of the kingdom of God. He's not a part of the kingdom of God because he ultimately does not do the will of the Father. He, he flatters the Father. He tells the Father exactly what he wants to hear. He says all of the right things, but his heart is not in it at all. He doesn't care about the Father's work. He only cares about what he is going to get out of it. And he, he talks the talk, but he does not walk the walk. When it comes right down to it, he doesn't perform for the Father, showing that he is truly the rebellious son. And Jesus capitalizes on this idea of repentance and performance and to call the chief priests and the elders to repent. Look at 31 and 32. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of heaven before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your mind and believe him. And so the tax collectors and the prostitutes, even though they initially rebel against God, eventually repented and did the Lord's will. Whereas the chief priests and the elders, they, they claim to be sons of God. They claim to be people who desire to do the Father's will, but they didn't. Instead, they lived life on their own terms, adhering to their own will, not the will of the Father, which makes them like the second son. The son who talked the talk but did not 
ultimately walk the walk. And because of that, the, the ones whom they considered to be the least, the, the worst people in all of society, the ones that they spent considerable amount of time trying to avoid and trying to, to, to get away from, those folks, Jesus is saying, is going to enter the kingdom before them. I mean, talk about a shocking revelation. I mean, imagine being the chief priests and the elders, the people who thought they had it all together. The ones who, who thought they would be the first to enter into the kingdom of heaven, that, that the line would part, and that they would be the ones to walk in before anybody else. Imagine this shocking revelation, and Jesus is saying, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the lowest of the low in society, the people who would extort others, the people who sold their bodies, they are the ones who are going to enter into the kingdom of heaven before you. Imagine being the chief priests and the elders and hearing that. They were the ones who ultimately repented. They were the ones who sought to do the will of the Father. And because of that, they are the ones who are entering into the kingdom. And after telling them that, that, that the cheap tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom before them, Jesus tells them, look, you guys are without excuse for not doing the Father's will. In verse 32, Jesus gives two reasons why they're without excuse. First, they rejected God's prophets. And that's what he's getting at in the beginning of the verse. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. And the John that he's talking about is John the Baptist, if you remember at the Right before Jesus' ministry, John went out into the wilderness and John was preaching the way of righteousness. He was calling people to follow the Lord, to repent of their sins, and to prepare the way for Jesus. And instead of accepting John's message, instead of realizing how they were sinning against the Lord, instead of repenting and turning and, and living a way of righteousness according to God's way instead of their own way, they determined that they were going to continue to live in the way of righteousness according to their own way. And that's what we often do. We believe that, that our way of doing things, our definition of right and wrong is, is what is right. And we see this in our society today, right? There are all these alternative and competing definitions for what, are, what is righteous and what is just. If you listen carefully, though, you're going to notice that, that these are not based on objective, external standards. They're, they're not coming from God. They're coming from man. They're subjective and, in, and internal. They, they are only those things that fit the season in which the person is living. They're, they're not going to be universal. They're not going to last forever. They're going to be here one week and they're going to change the next week. Those definitions are selfish and those definitions are often self-serving. They're completely relative and ever-changing. And we see this in society all of the time. That which is righteous and just has changed from, from year to year, from, from five-year period to five-year period, from decade to decade. Right? It's always changing. And so you see these people coming out and they're saying, well, I have evolved in this area or I have evolved in that area. Right? That's how we know that, that those ideas are relative, that those ideas are not objective and external, but they're just self-serving. When we define things in our own way, we're always going to pick that which serves us and serves our cause. And that's not justice. That's not righteousness. All that is, is selfishness. And just like John the Baptist sought to break 
through to this selfish, self-serving righteousness of the chief priests and the elders, God does the same today. God has, has given us His Word. And it is His Word that speaks into our lives. It is His Word that, that breaks through that selfishness, that self-serving righteousness, and tells us what God desires of us and for us and how we are supposed to live. It is God's Word that we have today that diagnoses our problems and calls us to repent and turn back and to follow the Lord. The chief priests and the elders were without excuse. We are without excuse today because we have God's Word that tells us exactly what God desires for us. Not only did they reject God's prophet and his message, but they also rejected the witness of the people. So verse 32 again, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe in him. See, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they repented at John's message. Repenting, they turned to live according to God's will. Even though the chief priests and the elders saw all these people turn from their former way of life, clean themselves up, begin to follow the Lord, they're no longer seeking to extort their fellow brothers or sisters. They're no longer selling their bodies for money. They have completely changed. They have done an about-face with their life. And they are now living according to God's will and doing what He desires for them to do. Even with all of that evidence, the chief priests and the elders refuse to believe the gospel message. Not only is truth powerful, but truth affecting someone's life is powerful as well. It lends credence to the message. The chief priests and the elders, they were privy to see what took place. That should have had an effect on them. It should have caused them to, to look and say, well, this message that is being preached by John, this message that is being preached by Jesus, it has a life-changing effect on people. They should have saw that and they should have given second thought to what they were believing. And they should have saw that and they should have believed the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus was preaching. And turned from their way of doing things and followed Jesus. They didn't do that. But we can do that. We can look and see how has the Lord worked in another person's life. We can share that testimony with other people about how the Lord has worked in our life. You see, testimony is powerful. In each and every one of us who are Christians, we should have a testimony. We should be able to tell other people how we lived a life of rebellion against God. How the Gospel message has come into our life. How it has changed us. And then we should be able to show evidence of that through living out a changed life in front of them. They should be able to see our life, how it has changed. And each and every one of us has a testimony. We may not have a in the gutter type story like maybe these tax collectors and the prostitutes had. But every one of us desired to do what we wanted with our own bodies, with our own minds, with our own hearts. Every one of us desired to sit as the king of our own hearts and to direct our own lives before we came to Christ. And when we come to Christ, that should cause that change. 
We should come down from the throne of our heart and we should put God in His rightful place where He is the King over our lives. That's what it looks like for us to be a believer. That's what it looks like for us to repent. We're not just repenting of a few sins that we may or may not have done here and there, right? We're repenting of all-out rebellion against God. Every one of us should have a story like that. Every one of us should be able to point others to that. You see, testimony is powerful. And we can share that testimony with other people as a means to share the Gospel with them. We all have a testimony, and we should all share that. And not only does this parable help us to understand repentance and the power of testimony, but it also helps us to see that, that those who truly follow Jesus do God's will. Those who truly follow Jesus do God's will. Jesus is addressing this idea head-on in this parable by presenting one son who actually does the Father's will and the other son who, who doesn't do the Father's will. You see, it's not good enough to talk the talk. We must also walk the walk. Those who are part of the kingdom actually perform for the kingdom. See, if you were to go and you were to read the, the hobbies section on my Facebook page or my Facebook profile, you, you would see that I'm into a number of things, right? I like to cycle and I like to read and I like to blog and I do those things almost every single week. But then you would also read that, you know, I like to, to do some wakeboarding and surfing and, and rock climbing and go to the gym and, and work out. And, and while I used to do those things, I don't, I don't do them any longer, right? I, I can... I can talk to you for hours about rock climbing or, or surfing. I know all of the lingo. I know everything that is involved with that, but, but I don't actually climb or surf or work out on a regular basis every, you know, all the time. Whenever I get an opportunity to, I, I definitely like to do those things, but, but I don't do them all the time. Well, I can talk the talk. I'm not walking the walk. I'm not performing any of those activities. It's just a bunch of marketing hype that I've left on my Facebook profile that I probably need to remove just so that you'll think that maybe I'm more well-rounded than I actually am. And oftentimes, this is what I believe those in the Bible Belt do. Right? They, they can talk about the Bible all day long. They can use churchy language and churchy lingo because they've, they've been in church their entire life. They've, they've grown up in church. Their parents or their grandparents have, have brought them there. But, but when it comes to actually following the Bible's commands, they don't do it. All they're doing is, is talking the talk. They're not walking the walk alongside of that. But those who are true followers of Jesus, they not only talk about the Bible, they not only know the lingo, but they also follow what God's Word actually says for them to do. They live according to God's Word. They walk the walk. They perform you see, being a believer means more than just posting some spiritual quotes on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or whatever it is that you're into these days. Right? It's more than just posting a quote on, on Twitter or retweeting somebody who has done that. Being a believer is more than just knowing the lingo. Being a believer is more than just a claim. Being a believer means that you actually believe the Gospel and that gospel message has had an impact on your heart so that you are now following the will of the Father. See, we're not Christians just because we claim to be Christians. No, Christians are those who actually live according to God's Word. They are those who actually follow 
Jesus. Now, I'm not trying to frustrate you by telling you that you've got to you know, manufacture this change in your heart on your own. If, if you're truly a believer, then the Gospel should have pierced your heart. It should have changed your heart so that you desire the things of God, so that you desire His will, so that you want the things of God for you and your family and your community, and you follow God's will. Believers' hearts actually change our will, our desires, our wants. Those things actually change. And that change continues to take place throughout our Christian life. And so if you have been a believer for X amount of years, there should be a change that has taken place from when you profess faith in Christ to today. As the process of sanctification, as the process of you becoming more like Christ is at work in your life. If you have professed faith in Christ one day and you have walked an aisle or you've been, even been baptized, but there's been actually no change in your life at all, then you need to consider, well, am I the first son or am I the second son? You see, the second son has no change in his life. He just talks the talk. He doesn't really walk the walk. But the first son actually changes. He hears the message from his father. Go into the vineyard and work. He says no at first. He rejects that like many of us do. We hear the Gospel message. Come and follow Me, Jesus says. And we reject that and say, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. And then we end up turning and, and we do what? We, we actually follow Jesus. We go into the vineyard like the first son did and we work for the Father. There is a marked change in our life. And if we are true believers, that should take place. You see, part of our vision here is for us to be disciple-making disciples. That means that, that we become a disciple of Christ, that we are growing in discipleship, but that we are also turning around and we are making disciples of other people. And so if you're a disciple, you should be able to make disciples of other people. And this doesn't have to be super technical. This doesn't have to be super formal or anything like that. It's simply coming alongside another brother and sister in Christ and helping them to grow in their walk by gathering together with them in community to study God's Word, to encourage them, to counsel them, to hold them accountable, just to be there for them. Right? We, as we do all of those things, and we are helping other people to grow. And in turn, they are helping us to grow. Right? That's why God has called us into the church. He has called us into a community of people when we become believers. There are no Lone Ranger Christians that are out there. We are to gather together with one another as often as we can so that we might encourage one another as the day is drawing near, the writer of Hebrews says. So that we might counsel one another. So that we might equip one another to do the work of ministry. And so as believers in Christ, we need one another. We need to be in community. We need to be disciple-making disciples. We need to help others change and we need to be changing ourselves. It's the point of being a Christian is that we would change, that we would, that we would grow, that we would perform the will of the Father. We would follow Jesus in doing that. If we say we're just following God, we're like the second son. If we're actually following God, then we're like the first 
first son, no matter how rebellious our life was prior to that. Living as a Christian certainly involves belief, but belief also is followed by performance. Performance is, I want to be clear, performance does not earn, performance does not maintain our salvation. Christ has earned our salvation for us. Christ maintains our salvation for us as He is an advocate at the right hand of the Father. And so, performance does not earn, it does not maintain, but it is the product of the Gospel taking root in our hearts. And so where are you at today? Are you like the first son? Are you rebellious at first, but then you realize... And you turn and you repent and you're following Jesus? Or are you like the second son? The one who knows all the right answers, who knows all the lingo, who can talk the talk, but you're not actually walking the walk. You're still rebelling against God because you think that just saying what people want to hear is going to earn you favor. Where are you at this morning? If you really consider your life, you might be surprised. I'm sure the chief priests and the elders were surprised that, that Jesus wasn't welcoming them with open arms into the kingdom. But here's the thing, it's better to be surprised this morning. It's better to be humbled this morning than to be surprised and humbled on Judgment Day when Jesus returns. You might be surprised where you're at this morning. So give that some thought. Give that some thought as we seek to respond this morning. Give it some thought and say, Are, am I a part of the kingdom? Or is it all just marketing hype so that other people will think that I'm better than I really am. You can respond this morning by considering those questions, by reflecting on your own life. And if you find that, that you are like the first son, that you were rebellious, but you have repented and you turned to Jesus, well, praise God this morning. Praise and glorify Him this morning because it is Jesus who has won your salvation for you. Praise and glorify Him. Purpose to follow Him. And if you're like the second son this morning, well, you can respond by turning to Jesus. By believing in Him as your Lord and as your Savior. The chief priests and the elders, they, they didn't change their mind. But you can change your mind this morning. Jesus died so that we have the privilege of working for the kingdom of God. To bring God glory and to enjoy the kingdom for all of eternity. And this morning we see a visual representation of that. As we take the Lord's Supper this morning, we see a visual representation of what Jesus has done on our behalf. See, the Lord's Supper is a family meal, which means that it's an opportunity for those who have repented of their sins, those who believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, those who are walking the walk and not just talking the talk, to, to come together to remember what Jesus has done for them. To proclaim to the world the salvation that Jesus provides. And if you're a part of that family this morning, if you have professed faith in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, if you're a baptized believer, then we invite you to partake of the supper this morning. But if you're not a part of the family, if you wouldn't admit that you are a believer, if, you, if you're not one who has professed faith in Christ, then Allow the elements to pass to, to watch and to see, to see a visual representation of the gospel this morning as we as a church 
proclaim to the world what we believe, that Jesus is the King. And as we turn to the supper, we learn that the bread represents Jesus' body. And Jesus was broken for us. He experienced the wrath of God on our behalf. He, he died in our place. You see, the wages of sin is, is death, and Jesus paid those wages for us so that we might have life. And so this morning, as we take of the bread, let's remember Jesus' death on our behalf. Let's do that now. And that same night as Jesus gathered together with His disciples, as He was giving them this meal of remembrance to remember Him by, Jesus also took the cup, the wine, and this represents Jesus' blood that is spilt for us. And much like the mercy seat in the Old Testament was, was sprinkled with the blood, we are sprinkled with the blood so that we might be holy, so that we might be righteous. You see, it's Jesus' sacrifice that makes us righteous and and the supper reminds us of that. It's not our work. It's Jesus' work on our behalf. And so as we, as we partake of the blood this morning, we remember that, that it's Jesus. It is Jesus who makes us righteous. It is Jesus who makes us holy. It is Jesus who covers us. Let's remember that now. Would you bow with me in prayer? God, we thank You for today. We thank You for the opportunity to gather together as a church, Lord. We thank You for the message that You have given us out of Your Word, God. <clears throat> we pray today that <clears throat> we would consider closely where we are at. Whether we are the first son or the second son. Whether we are the ones who have truly repented and turned to follow You, or whether we're just talking the talk without really walking the walk, Lord. Help us, God, to, to peer deeply into our own hearts to see where we are at, Lord. And God, as we find that, that we are the rebellious but repentant Son, as we have partaken of the supper this morning, Lord, we thank You for the sacrifice that You have made on our behalf. We thank You, God, that, that You have been broken for us. That Your blood has been spilt so that we might be made righteous, Lord. So that we might be called into the kingdom. That we might be able to work for the Father. Because it is the glory of God over our glory. Lord, help us to be good kingdom citizens who seek Your glory over our own glory. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.